Platonism and Naturalism, The Possibility of Philosophy, by Lloyd P. Gerson. Part 1. Plato's Rejection of Naturalism. Chapter 5. The Centrality of the Idea of the Good in the Platonic System. Part 1. 5.1. The Idea of the Good, Unhypothetical First Principle of All. All Platonists have acknowledged the need for a first unifying metaphysical principle of all. That the need for such a principle is recognized in Plato's dialogues, in Aristotle's testimony, and in the indirect tradition was never doubted. All this despite the fact that disputes regarding its nature and its relation to everything else evidently existed even in the old academy itself. As we saw in chapter 2, Plato does not provide arguments for the existence of such a principle, although it is not difficult to construct one on the basis of the assumptions with which he was most likely working. In fact, Aristotle and Plotinus focus on such arguments, arriving at decidedly different conclusions about the nature of this principle. I shall consider these later. In this chapter, I want to set out first the evidence from the dialogues concerning a first principle of all. Then I shall briefly consider Aristotle's account of the nature of this principle, and the evidence of the indirect tradition. We begin with those passages in Republic referring unequivocally to a superordinate first principle of all, the idea of the good. To Agathu. 1. There is a greatest study, Megiston Mathema, for humankind. This study is of something more important, Timezon, than the study of forms, 404, excuse me, 504 D2 through E5. This study is of the idea of the good. 505a 6 through 7. 3. The sun, in its active causal role, is analogous to the idea of the good. Each is overflowing. Epiruton. 508b 6 through 7. 4. The analogy between the sun and the idea of the good is convoluted, so that the sun itself can be seen as the offspring of the good. 506E3, 508B13, 517C3. 5. The idea of the good is the endpoint of all striving. 505D11 through E1. 6. The idea of the good is the principle of knowledge, episteme, and intellection, Nous, and truth, aletheia, of things, especially forms. 508e1 through 4 with 508a9 through b7, 509b6, and 517c2 through 3. 7. The idea of the good is the principle of the existence and essence, einaitekaiten usian of forms, 509b, 9-10. through 10. 8. The idea of the good itself, 
is beyond essence in rank and power. Epecenetes usias presveia, cae duname huperechontos. 509b9-10. 9. The causal reach of the idea of the good extends beyond, or below, the forms. 516b10. 517c1-2. 10. The idea of the good is, in a certain sense, the cause of all things. Ekeinon hon sveis eoron tropontina panton aitios. 516c1-2. 11. Attaining to or grasping the idea of the good is necessary for knowing forms. 511b5 through c2. 12. The idea of the good is apprehensible, gignoscomenen, itself, and an account, logos, of it can be given. 508e4. 517b8 through c1, 532b1, 534b3 through d1. 13. Dialectic is the sole means of attaining knowledge of the idea of the good, the unhypothetical, anupotheton, first principle of all, 510b6 through 7, 511b5 through 6. 533a, 8 through 9, c7 through d4. 14. This dialectical knowledge of the idea of the good is the means to the highest human happiness. 498c3, 532e2 through 3, 540b6 through c2. The following are not separately listed by Thomas Slezak. 15. The idea of the good is, quote, happiest of that which is, eudaimonestaton tu ontos, 526e4-5, through 5, referring to e2, the brightest of that which is, tu ontos tofanotaton, 518c9, and the best among things that are, tain tu Aristu entois usi, 532c, 6-7. 16. The idea of the good is more beautiful, kalion, than knowledge and truth, 509a6. 17. The idea of the good is a source of exact measure, metron, 504c1 through 4, e2 through 3. 18. The idea of the good is the explanation, idea, for everything right and beautiful. 517c1. 19. Forms are good like, agathoide, but not the good itself. 509a3 through 5. 20. No one can act wisely, either in private or in public, without seeing the good. 517 C3-4 21. 
The idea of the good is a model, paradigma, to be used by philosopher rulers for ordering states and individuals. 540A7-B1 We should add, though, the passages are found in Phaedo and Philebus and not Republic, and not uh, do not obviously refer to the idea of the good, the following. 22. That which is good, to agathon, or binding, deon, truly binds things or holds them together. Phaedo, 99C, 5-6. 23. The good cannot be captured in one idea, ideia, but rather in three ideas united. These are beauty, commensurability, and truth. Philebus, 65A, 1-5. through These passages raise profoundly difficult problems, but they leave no doubt whatsoever that the idea of the good in Republic is held by Plato to be the focus of his philosophy. And because of its unique, superordinate, and comprehensive causal scope, it is the focus of his systematic philosophy. Here are just some of the obvious problems raised by these passages. How, for example, can the good exist or be in any way if it is beyond being or essence? How, so conceived, can it be the cause of anything? What does it mean for the good to provide the knowability of forms? Why cannot uh, it mean? Uh, why cannot forms be known unless the good is known? And perhaps most puzzlingly, why is the first principle of all identified as the idea of the good? These can hardly be avoided if the dialogues are held to be primary data for the systematic construction of Platonism. It is no exaggeration to say that this evidence for the postulation of an unhypothetical first principle of all has been increasingly dismissed or even ignored in the last two generations or so in the English-speaking world of Platonic scholarship. I shall not attempt here to provide a list of what I take to be obviously false interpretations of the idea of the good, or of those scholars who profess Plato's metaphysics and epistemology without any mention of this principle. Suffice to say that if the good is beyond essence, it cannot have an essence, as it must if being an essence is a property of forms, or if it is the sum of the essences that are forms, or if it is a summum genus of the forms. The form of forms, so to speak. Nor can its being the cause of the existence and essence of forms amount only to its being the explanation for why it is good that such entities exist, even though this is true. Nor can it just be the Demiurge, who, among other things, has the property of being good, and who is minimally qualified by the essences he cognizes. In light of such interpretations, one can perhaps understand the inclination to ignore the matter of the idea of the good altogether. I believe, however, that the correct lesson to learn from such matters is the one that undeniably meets anyone who examines the writings of Platonism and Platonic scholarship prior to Friedrich Schleiermacher. 
The lesson is that interpreting Plato and Platonism correctly requires that we do not confine ourselves to the dialogues, much less to a disjointed set of dialogues, each one hermeneutically sealed off from the rest. In the remainder of this section, I want to address several technical issues first on behalf of answering the above questions. These are issues the clarification of which will be of assistance in arriving at a clearer picture of the role of the idea of the good in Plato's system. First, the words to einai tekaiten usian. There are two related points here. First is whether Plato is using the words tekai to indicate redundancy, so that einai and usia may be supposed to refer to the same thing. This seems highly unlikely in this case, because while the good is said to be beyond usia, it is not set, uh, beyond having a form of the verb einai said of it. Section 5.1, 15. Thus, we should suppose that the good is beyond einai, only in the sense in which this is attributable to something with usia. It is not beyond being or existing altogether. It is beyond the existence of anything composed of existence and essence. Since the primary connotation of usia is that of limitedness, or circumscription, or whatness. I translated the word in this context as essence. Thus, the good is beyond essence, but not beyond being or existence. The implication is that insofar as the good can be said to have an essence at all, its essence is infinite or unlimited. This point will be clarified in the second part of the Parmenides, wherein we find a logical analysis of what follows for that which is without essence, or usia. The second point is that the good is itself said to be apprehensible, section 5.1.12, which might be thought to be problematic if what we apprehend generally is usia. But there is also a study mathesis of the good, and that word does not necessarily indicate that only an essence can be studied. The good is apprehensible, but only by inference as the necessary unhypothetical first cause. Apprehensible should thus be taken to have a wider scope than episteme, which can only have essence as its object. The good can be known, but as a power, it can only be known by its effects, or what it does. Because the good is unlimited in its nature, it is unlimited in its power, and therefore unlimited in its effects. In other words, anything that has limited being, which is to say everything that is other than the good, is directly or indirectly an effect of the good. Thus, the good is necessarily implicated in the explanation of the being of everything, or, stated otherwise, in the being of everything for which there is an explanation. If this were not the case, this would indicate a limitation in the good, a case where an ultimate explanation is available, but, for one reason or another, 
the good is limited in being unable or unwilling to contribute. If this is impossible, we have before us the foundation stone for the systematic nature of Platonism, namely, explanatory unity. All philosophical explanation converges on the good. The contributions of forms, therefore, must be as instrumental causes, not as ultimate causes or explanations. The third point is that the forms are good-like, agathoeidae, but not the good itself, section 5.1, number 19. How can an usia, or that with an usia, be like that which is beyond usia? To say, as is certainly the case for Plato, that an effect must be like its cause just pushes the problem into a different arena. Here is a striking example of a claim made within Republic for which there is no clarification elsewhere in the dialogue, whereas when we appeal to Aristotle's testimony, matters become substantially clearer. But an answer to this question should be framed by the following consideration. Everything comes from the good, 5.1, number 10, directly or indirectly, and everything desires the good, 5.1, number 5. The answer to the question of how forms can be good-like will be found in what the forms do generally. Each is a principle of integrative unity making all their participants one this or that. Therefore, what makes a heap of flesh and bones a human being is what makes it one human being, namely, participation in the form of humanity. As we shall see below, Plato identified the good with the one. The forms will be like the good insofar as each is a principle of integrative unity. But none of these principles of unity are themselves unqualifiedly one. Each is internally complex. A form is good-like by being a principle of unity. Yet since each is an usia, it is like the first principle of all in a diminished or inferior way. The good is the one because it must be beyond usia or principles of limit, and therefore unqualifiedly simple. I will be returning to the above texts in this and in subsequent chapters, especially the next. In the following four sections, however, I want to show that the references to the good in Republic are certainly not obiter dicta. Rather, the good is in fact ubiquitous. 5.2. First Principles in Parmenides For many modern scholars, a constructive metaphysical interpretation of the Parmenides, particularly its second part, is the outstanding distinguishing mark of later Platonism, or, as most prefer to call it, Neoplatonism. I wish to emphasize two points here at the outset, though I shall have much more to say later on. First, as Proclus amply shows, Platonists offered widely different interpretations of this dialogue. There is no one Neoplatonic interpretation of it. Second, 
as I am trying to show in this chapter, for the majority of the Platonists, that dialogue is not so much the central focus of their metaphysics as it is a systematic expression of principles drawn from other dialogues, from Aristotle's testimony and from the indirect tradition. I think it is most accurate to say, generally, that they took Parmenides as providing confirming rather than decisive evidence. In Parmenides, Plato has the great man himself pose a number of problems for Socrates' so-called theory of forms. Actually, these problems amount to a sort of super-dilemma. Either forms are unqualifiedly separate from the sensible world, in which case they have no explanatory role to play therein, or else they are somehow implicated in the sensible world owing to sensibles participating in them, in which case the status or integrity of every form as a one over many is threatened. Parmenides himself says that if these problems are not solved, then all discourse will be destroyed. For it is the forms that explain the grounds of intelligible discourse by accounting for the samenesses and differences among things, that which makes language possible. He suggests an exercise in order to train one to solve the problems. The exercise is to consider the logical consequences of hypothesizing the existence of something, both for itself and for everything else. In addition, it must consider the consequences of denying that subject's existence, both for itself and for everything else. At the urging of his interlocutors, Parmenides agrees to offer as an example of his proposal his own hypothesis regarding that which is one, considering the consequences of its existence and non-existence, both for itself and for everything else. That is, for any one the consequences of its posit are to be examined along with the consequences for anything related to that one, insofar as it is one in the posited sense. Parmenides' own hypothesis is summarized by Socrates earlier in the dialogue as the all is one, hentopan. The claim is obviously both obscure and ambiguous, and efforts to eliminate at least the ambiguity seem to me to miss the point. If there is an all, then how can it be one? Stated differently, if the all is one, then it seems equally worth insisting that in whatever sense the all is one, we still have to assert that it is all, or many. In other words, not one. In addition, if the all is one, then the oneness that the all shares cannot be oneness in the sense in which each member or part of the all is one. This point has particular relevance for the forms. Parmenides has cautioned Socrates that he needs a preliminary training before he seeks to define horizdestai, uh, each one of the forms, henhekaston ton eidon, Therefore, if indeed the all is one, it cannot be one in the sense in which each form is one. For the identical reason, insofar as that which is one has the status of a paradigm for any of its participants, we cannot suppose that the oneness of each one of these will be exactly that of the paradigm. That is, 
The oneness in which all the participants share is not the oneness of each participant. And this goes both for the oneness of the all and for the oneness of the forms. For this reason, it is a mistake to think the ensuing exercise has as its subject only forms, or even a form of unity. Only when the various senses of one are sorted out will we be in a position to see how exactly a form is one, and how this determination affects the responses to Parmenides' objections. As we shall see, the derivative oneness of a form implies the underivative oneness of a first principle of all. Forms cannot be unqualifiedly first because of their structural complexity. Our concern for now is primarily with the first and second uh, hypotheses, H1 and H2, of the second part of that dialogue. In H1, Parmenides works out the consequences for the hypothesis that, quote, if there is a one, of course, the one will not be many. On this hypothesis, it follows that the one cannot be a whole or have any parts, 137d, 1 through 2. It can have no limits or boundaries, 137d, 7 through 8. It can have no shape, 137d, 8. It can be nowhere, nor in anything that is anywhere, 138b, 5 through 6. It cannot be in motion or at rest, 137b, 2 through 3. It cannot be identical, tauton, with or different from itself or from anything else, 139e, 4 through 5. It cannot be the same, homoion, or not the same. Anomoyon, as itself or anything else, 140b, 4 through 5. It cannot be equal to or unequal to itself or anything else, or greater than or lesser than itself or anything else, 140d, 6 through 7. It cannot be older or younger or the same age as itself or anything else, in which case it cannot be in time at all. 141d, 4 through 5. Since the one is not, was not, and will not be, it cannot partake of being. Usia. 141d, 9. It cannot even be to the extent of being one. 141d, 10 through 11. There can be no name, onoma, for it, no account, logos, no knowledge, episteme, no sense perception, aisthesis, nor belief, doxa, of it. 142, A, 3-4. H2 ostensibly returns to the original hypothesis, or more accurately, to the original first clause of the hypothesis, if there is a one. This time, however, Parmenides argues that if there is a one, it must partake of essence. This explicitly contradicts the above consequence at 141e9, that if it is one, the one cannot partake of essence. Here, it seems, we have, a we have conclusive evidence that the subjects of h1 and h2 are not identical, 
that is, <clears throat> that is, they are defined differently. The immediate consequence that we should draw in relation to the problems set forth in the first part of the dialogue is that the senses in which each of the elements of Plato's metaphysics are one are likely to be different or distinct. Thus, if a form is a one over many, the sense in which it is one needs to be made precise. And if the first principle of all, the idea of the good, is, as Aristotle says, and as Philebus seems to confirm, the one, the sense in which it is one, needs two to be made precise. H2 will reverse the string of consequences drawn in the first. Thus, all the properties denied of that one will be attributed to the one that partakes of essence. It is hardly surprising that Platonists should identify the subject of the first hypothesis with the first principle of all. But far from clarifying matters, this identification is the starting point for an array of deep problems, not the least of which is how that which is in uh, which is in no way can have any causal functioning, or generally any relevance to anything in Plato's philosophy. The identification of the subject of H2 is, among Platonists, more controversial and more complicated. Minimally, what H2 tells us is that anything that has any essence whatsoever is really distinct from the essence in which it partakes. Anything that has any essence whatsoever is really distinct from the essence in which it partakes. In addition, it is really distinct from its oneness. This is so because if something is really distinct from its essence, then there is a unified being consisting of that which partakes of the essence and the essence itself. But that means that there is a real distinction between that which is one and the oneness it has. The general point is that wherever something with an essence is found, we must distinguish within it the essence, the thing that has the essence, and the unity of the two. We must distinguish within it the essence, the thing that has the essence, and the unity of the two. As we learn from Timaeus, Philebus, and Statesman, Plato recognizes that usia is found in the sensible world albeit in a diminished manner. So, for example, whereas there is no cognition of the one of H1, there can be sense perception, belief, and knowledge of the one of H2. This claim, therefore, covers the oneness of purely intelligible objects, as well as the oneness of anything that partakes of an intelligible object. In H2, then, we have a critical distinction between, on the one hand, the array of intelligible objects and their participants, and on the other, the one which completely transcends intelligibility. Complexity is not necessarily divisibility, whether discreetly or continuously, but the one of H2 is divisible in both ways. As acknowledged in the Old Academy by Plato's successor Speusippus, this is owing to the presence of the principle of the indefinite dyad, 
Anything that is complex in being is composite, and so divisible, discreetly or continuously. Therefore, the being of everything other than the one of H1, the idea of the good, has within it a principle of indefiniteness or limitlessness. The principle of limit, therefore, is the one of H2. The indefinite dyad is the principle of unlimitedness. Much of the confusion in relation to this dialogue can be traced to the fact that it is easy to conflate the one of H1, which is transcendent, with the one of H2, which is coordinate with the indefinite dyad, and which together comprise or represent logically the one being. The confusion is compounded by misreading the one of H1 as irrelevant to what follows, and therefore not possibly identical with the idea of the good. When the latter confusion is internalized, so to speak, it then seems impossible to identify the good with the one that is coordinate with the indefinite dyad. Not the least reason for this is that it participates in essence. It is hardly a travesty, the travesty of Platonic exegesis, that some make it out to be, to infer that the one of H1 is extensionally equivalent to the good of Republic, which is beyond essence, epekinetesusias, and beyond the existence of that which has essence. Nevertheless, we are still left with the problem of how the one is supposed to have not just a causal role, but the ultimate causal role in Plato's system. In addition, if the one of H1 is the idea of the good, how do the multiple effects of the good as set forth in the Republic belong to the one? We must recall that if the one of H1 is the good, and therefore is beyond essence, then if it does possess causal efficacy, it is unlimited in doing so. Its overflowing does not cease at some point short of what is logically possible. By contrast, the one of H2 is, as that hypothesis assumes throughout, limited by its essence. But it is only limited in this way that one is present wherever its essence is present. Suppose, for example, that the one of H2 were a form F. Then F is present wherever and whenever anything can be said to be non-exclusively F. According to the negation of the list of properties which the one of H1 cannot possess, Anything that is F non-exclusively can possess these properties, including being extended in time and being the object of sense perception and belief. It is also divisible insofar as it is extended. In short, the intelligible world goes right up to, or down to, the limit of intelligibility, which is the unintelligible or formless. With the logical tools to be able to distinguish the oneness of a form and the oneness of an instance, we are then supposed to be able to march between the horns of the dilemma posed by Parmenides. We do not have to accept either that forms are irrevocably separate from the sensible world, in which case they are irrelevant to the explanation of anything here below, 
or else that they are impossibly implicated in the sense of a world such that the regress arguments destroy the claim that these forms are ones. The putative causal scope of the one, or good, of H1, in relation to the causal scope of the one of H2, gives us a hint as to what this causality is. It is not the paradigmatic causality possessed by a form, or by being in general. It is not the efficient cause of any complex being in the precise sense of complexity according to which the cause is one existent with an essence. The efficient causality operates eternally. It is eternally present such that when the necessary conditions for the existence of anything are present, then that thing exists. This is analogous to the way that the eternal truths of mathematics are eternally present and applicable to anything when the necessary conditions for their operation are present. As we have seen, and as I shall discuss further below in Sophist, the claim that the good, or one, is beyond being, means that being is multiple or complex. It is complex in the sense that all the natures of the forms are internally related. Each, one in, uh, each is one in one sense of one, and all together are one in another sense of one. That sense which is salient in H2. H2 gives us a logical map according to which we can at least begin to understand intelligibility in the sense of a world. This is significant because the intelligibility found in the sensible world is diminished, and the reason for rejecting nominalism, materialism, mechanism, skepticism, and relativism is only as strong as the reason for maintaining that the intelligibility of the image can never be adequately explained in naturalistic terms. Plato does not think he has a better explanation than Anaxagoras in Anaxagorean terms, or in terms congenial to any of his materialist predecessors. He thinks that the correct terms of the explanation are entirely of a different sort. What is available to our thought, via sense perception, is explicable ultimately only in terms of that which is available to thought alone. Let us savor for one moment the paradox underlying the claim that Plato's unhypothetical first principle of all, the linchpin of his system, has not even sufficient being to be said to be one. But then let us go on to acknowledge that Plato has evidently embraced the Parmenidean point that the first principle of all must be absolutely and unequivocally simple, such that, among other things, no legitimate predicative judgments can be made in relation to it. And further, as absolutely simple, its causality must be unique as well as indispensable for the being of everything else. It is eternally producing its effects. Pace F. M. Cornford, and a slew of other scholars, if the idea of the good is not the one, or one of H1, it is very difficult to discern its position as the unhypothetical first principle of all. One obvious criticism of the view that the one of H1 is the good, which is identical with the one, is, here, uh, is that 
there is a study, mathesis, of the good, and it's it is apprehensible with an account. Whereas, as we have just seen, there is no logos of the one of H1, nor any other cognitional uh, relation to it. The answer to this objection is that the subject of H1 is unavailable to cognition precisely because of its absolute simplicity. There is nothing that can be said about it because that would involve a predicative statement, and that would in turn imply complexity in it of some sort. The cognitive unavailability of the subject of H1 is exactly like that of the idea of the good insofar as we agree that its being beyond usia indicates its lack of complexity of any sort. This would seem to be inevitable if having any sort of complexity means that there is something that it is, which in turn means that it has usia in some sense. So, what is the study of the good supposed to be, and what sort of account of it can be given? The core of that answer is that we are able to study and cognize it only via abductive inferences, that is, as the necessary cause of given effects. Apart from everything else, this is a daunting task, since everything that is that is, is an effect of the causal activity of the good. This broad abductive approach may be narrowed insofar as we can isolate a specific effect or a property of a specific effect, and therefore name the good as the cause of that. For example, if self-sufficiency is a property of good insofar as something is good, then we can name the good unqualifiedly self-sufficient. I take it that the happiness of the good section 5.1, number 15, follows from its self-sufficiency, which follows from the fact that it is the cause of the existence of all cases of goodness, and goodness has the property of self-sufficiency. The analysis of the meaning of one in H1 gives us a picture of what an absolutely simple one must be, the denial of this one's identity with the unhypothetical first principle of all, that is, the idea of the good, seems arbitrary and unjustified, particularly when we realize that the explicit logical exercise that is the entire entirety of the second part of the Parmenides must not identify that of which absolute simplicity or oneness applies. As Parmenides says, one has to go through the exercise in order to see how to solve the problems in the first part of the dialogue. It is true that nowhere in the first part is there said to be a problem the solution to which is going to require the positing of an absolutely simple first principle of all. On the other hand, Republic tells us that without ascending to this first principle, forms are unknowable. And if forms are unknowable, or uncognizable in any way, then, as Parmenides says, the power of discourse is destroyed. 5.3. First Principles in Sophist The nominal subject of Sophist is the discovery of the metier of the Sophists. It turns out that he is a purveyor of falsehoods, or counterfeits, of that which is real, 
But this identification raises the problem of how that which is not real can somehow still be. The problem of the reality, or existence, of non-being, in turn, is unsolvable unless the nature of being itself is revealed. The central part of this dialogue, 242b through 251a, is focused on various accounts of being, or existence, or realness, to-on. In particular, those offered by pluralists and monists, materialists and idealists. Not surprisingly, Platonists were seriously engaged with this discussion. The above problem introduces the central metaphysical discussion of the dialogue. The stranger attempts to provide a survey of those who have spoken about being. He adduces first various pluralists who tell us what things they think have being, einai. They do not, however, explain what they mean by the word being. If, for example, the hot and the cold make up reality, then being is not real or part of reality. If, though, saying that the hot and the cold are the only things that exist implies that being means something different from either hot or cold, then an accurate account of reality must not only include the hot and the cold, but also their being. If, for example, hot exists, gives us one piece of information, and cold exists, gives us another single piece of information, then exists conveys no distinct information. It would be as if we said, cold is different from hot. But if they are different, then each must exist, and exist seems to convey something different from cold or hot. The argument seems hopelessly inadequate, since the claim that, say, only the hot and the cold exist, or have being, does not commit one to including being among existence, even granting that being means something different from either hot or cold. But consider again, if being means something different from either hot or cold, then even if the latter two terms exhaust the kinds of things that have being, the fact that they have being is different from the fact that they are the only beings. This is so because failing to provide an argument that hot and cold are the only two things that are real or have being, the possible being of something else entails that being means something different from hot and cold. If being does mean something different, then the default platonic position, which is a referential theory of meaning, is that there is something that is real or has being that enters into the explanation for the being of the hot and the cold, and implicitly the non-being of everything else. Something which neither the nature of hot nor the nature of cold could do. We recall that the hypothesizing of the absolutely simple first principle of all, the idea of the good, leads Plato to distinguish the existence and the essence of the forms, the reason being that if the first principle is unique, 
Everything else that exists must be a composite of existence and essence. The failure of pluralists is not a failure to get right the number or kinds of things that have being, but to suppose that in making a claim about the number or kinds, they are thereby giving an account of being or existence. Lurking in the background, however, is the problem that if an account of being requires that a form of being exist, then we shall face the difficulty of whether that account pertains to the nature of being or to the fact that the form itself exists or has being. The problem underlying pluralism is the mirror image of the problem faced by the Eleatic Parmenides, who, the stranger says, maintains that, quote, the all is one, entopan, end quote. That is, if Eleatics claim that the one has being, to what does being refer? Either it refers to the identical thing that one refers to, in which case there is no claim that the one exists or has being, or else it refers to something different, in which case it is not true that the one alone has being. That is, it is not true that being and one refer to the identical thing. In addition, if either one refers or being refers, then each of them must exist sufficiently to be able to refer. The stranger argues that the question, what is being, to'on, cannot be coherently answered by the Parmenidean claim, the all, to'pan, is one, or alternatively, the one alone is. The principal reason for this is that to say that, quote, the one alone is, end quote, is in effect to claim two things. A, the only thing that has being is the one, and B, it has being. That is, what has being, only the one, and the fact that it has being, are distinct. The distinction cannot be merely conceptual, like the distinction between brother of John and brother of Mary, when applied to the identical individual. For if one and being indicated merely a conceptual distinction, there would in fact be, from Parmenides, no answer forthcoming to the question, what is real? For when he replies, the one, this must be taken as equivalent to replying, the real is real, or being is. Since Parmenides, at least according to Plato, does actually want to make a substantive claim about the nature of reality, namely, all is one, it cannot be the case that one and is, or being, refer to the identical thing. Similarly, if Parmenideans now say that the all is one, meaning that the all is a whole consisting of all its parts, then the sense in which the all is one requires that there be a real distinction between one and being. For what is unequivocally one is without parts. Therefore, if being or reality is a whole, we can say that it has a sort of oneness, but that it is not unqualifiedly one. Rather, it has oneness as a property, pathos. 
It may be supposed that the conclusion reached about the distinction between that which is truly one and the oneness of that which is real, or a whole, is unproblematic. For a similar conclusion can be reached as to the, as to the distinction between being and the being of whatever is real. But the insight that the Platonic tradition will eventually seize on with full force is that the cases are not parallel. Plato himself will, later in the dialogue, argue that the being of real things is distinct from those things. But that which provides being to forms is beyond the real things, ta'onta. At least, it is beyond the things that are real owing to their partaking in usia. Putting this together with Aristotle's claim that for Plato, the first principle of all is the one, invites the conclusion that the way a real thing's being, di being is distinct from that real thing is different from the way its oneness is distinct from it. This, in turn, suggests that the oneness of that which partakes of oneness, either the whole that it is, or as a part of the whole, is different from that which the first principle is, for the first principle is not really one, where one indicates a predicate. The second part of the examination of theories of being is the confrontation with the materialists and idealists, or the friends of the forms, and the former, identi uh, the former identifying realness with that which is sensible, and the latter with that which is intelligible. The response to the first group is a definition, horos, of the being of real things. Quote, I say that all that which really has being is whatever by nature possesses some power either to affect or to be affected by anything else whatsoever in the smallest way, by the smallest amount, even if for only an instant. I propose that we should say that the definition for the being of real things is nothing but power. End quote. The definition is meant to include that uh, what moderate materialists will not want to exclude from the real, that is, properties of bodies which themselves cannot be three-dimensional solids. They agree that in bodies and their properties alone, realness, or essence, usia, is found. But the definition of being as power does not, of course, tell us what is real or even what realness is. It only gives us a property, pathos, of the real. If we compare this definition with the passage in Republic Above, section 5.18, we would naturally draw the conclusion that the idea of the good is most real, not because it is said to exceed all else in dunamis, but also because it unqualifiedly affects everything that has being in the most profound way, by causing everything to exist. Therefore, the defining property of the real is possessed in the highest degree by that which transcends essence, though it does not, apparently, transcend existence or being. But the fact that this does not undercut the absolute simplicity or incompositeness of the good directs us to see, at least in the case of the good, power not such that it has it, but as 
what it is. The response to the second group, the so-called friends of the forms, who want to insist that only the unchanging intelligible realm is real. The Eliatic stranger asks the rhetorical question, well, for heaven's sake, are we really going to be so easily persuaded that motion, life, soul, and wisdom are not present in that which is perfectly real, or that it has neither life nor thinks, but that, that it stands unchanging in holy solemnity, having no intellect? End quote. This passage has been widely misinterpreted to indicate that Plato is here, so to speak, announcing the rehabilitation of the sensible world as now being on a par with the intelligible world. But taking the passage in this way would require us to assume that the friends of the forms had hitherto denied not the relative unintelligibility of the sensible world, but that it has being at all. Although there is nothing anywhere in the dialogues to point to as evidence that Plato ever held this view, one could suppose that the friends do not represent Plato himself at an earlier stage of his development, but rather, for example, other members of the academy. This is possible, but if the sensible world does not have being at all, what is the point of positing forms in the first place? As we learn from Parmenides, Forms are posited to explain the possibility that things can be the same even though they are not identical. More broadly, they are adduced to explain the possibility of predication. But if, sen if the sensible world does not have being, then there is not something uh, then there is nothing to explain. It seems much more reasonable to suppose that the correction to the theory of the friends is in fact a correction to their view that the intelligible world is bereft of life, especially intelligent life, and the sort of motion that this entails. The principal import of this text is that intelligible reality is alive and possessed of intellect, something that, as we shall presently see, is confirmed by Timaeus. The dilemma posed by this claim for the Platonist is patent, Either the first principle of all is beyond life and cognition altogether, in which case its causal role, to say nothing of its happiness, is utterly opaque, or else it does have life and cognition, in which case it is equally opaque how it can be beyond usia. We recall that the words to on are used by Plato in Republic to describe the subject matter of philosophy. What we have here is an explicit expansion, or at least substantive clarification, of the contents of the really real. As a result of this expansion, we may infer that change, life, soul, and wisdom, insofar as these are found in the sensible world, have their paradigms in the intelligible world. Accordingly, any fruitful study of the former must grasp these as images of the latter. Insofar as Platonism and naturalism engage on psychological and cognitive issues pertaining to human beings, the Platonic position will be an extension of the argument in Phaedo, according to which naturalists can in principle only provide necessary con conditions for the true causes of embodied phenomena. Thus, say, 
Embodied thinking can only be understood as a diminished version of the thinking that occurs in the intelligible world. A naturalist will, of course, agree that an image can only be understood if one understands what it is an image of. They will disagree that psychological and cognitive phenomena in the sensible realm are images of anything. Therefore, their denial of the subject matter of philosophy as identified by Platonism leaves them, according to the Platonist, with only a naturalist account of these phenomena. If such accounts are adequate, then the motive for seeing the phenomena as images evanesces. If they are held to be inadequate, the way is open for platonic accounts. The recognition of the presence of life in the intelligible world is related to the analysis that yields a first principle of all that is uniquely incomposite. That is, if there is an intelligible world at all, something that even reformed materialists are poised to accept, it is intrinsically complex. Hence, relations are possible among intelligibles. But as we have seen, in the intelligible world, all relations must be internal relations. For example, if justice and virtue are forms, and justice is a species of virtue, then the relation between these is intrinsic and eternal. It belongs to what virtue is, that a part of it is justice, and it belongs to justice to be a part of virtue. Thus, the complexity among forms is more than the minimal complexity that follows from a real minor distinction within each form between its existence and its essence. The essence of each form is itself complex, and this complexity cannot exclude the existence of each of its complex essential parts really distinct from the essence of each part. But what of its life? There are many things that Platonists will say about this, as we shall see. Here it will perhaps suffice to point out that the internal relations among eternal entities must still leave each intelligible to be what it is. Virtue remains uniquely virtue, even though it is, say, composed of forms of individual virtues. And justice remains justice, even though what it is is a part of virtue. Obviously, it will not do to represent such relations as ontological correlates of class inclusions and exclusions. Nevertheless, it is possible for intellects to think of the sameness, identities, and differences among forms. That is, to represent these in logoi, or necessarily true propositions. Thus, if justice is part of virtue, the proposition that justice is a virtue both represents the difference between justice and virtue and their relative identity. What is needed for an intelligible world that is constructed to provide explanations for predication here below is an intellect eternally thinking all that which is represented by us in necessarily true propositions. What, is, what need is there, though, for the middleman, the eternal intellect? 
The reason is that the requisite simultaneous identity, difference, and sameness is purely a property of cognitional activity. It is only in thinking that two different things can be one. Consider the following analogy. To maintain that the morning star is the evening star is roughly to maintain that two things are really one. But they are only two in the intellectual act of their identification, either by referring to one or the other, or by affirming the identity of each with the other. There must be eternal intellection because the eternal identity of each form is inseparable from its internal relatedness to all the other forms. Sophist provides further confirmation that Plato is working along this line of thought. It will be recalled that the exploration of being, to on, was undertaken to understand how non-being, to me on, is real. It turns out that being, although somehow present in things that are in motion, and things that are at rest or are stable, is distinct from both. Nevertheless, the association, koinonia, of the kind's motion and stability with being is necessary for each to exist. That motion or stability exist cannot, however, mean that motion and exist are two names that apply equally to uh, motion, that is, that there is a mere conceptual distinction within motion between its essence and its existence. Motion and stability and being are three entities. Therefore, their association is of a different order from the association that is made in a predicative statement, such as motion exists. Because motion and being associate in some way, we can give motion two names, motion and exist, without thereby falling prey to sophism. Or can we? The association of eternal entities, each one and immutable, is not obviously defended by saying that unless motion exists, then, on the postulation of forms, things will not be able to participate in motion. That is, they cannot be said to move or be movable. For one good reason for adhering to the nominalism of an Antisthenes is precisely that allowing predication means either saying that one thing is many or saying that there is nothing wrong with one thing being many, so long as we postulate an intelligible world in which one thing can be said to be many. Conceptual distinctions can be maintained so long as the problem that they are supposed to resolve is displaced into the eternal realm. This does not seem satisfactory. I think it is licit to take participation in forms as implicit in the argument against Antisthenes, given Parmenides' challenge in the Parmenides, namely that discourse would not be possible if forms were unqualifiedly separate from the sensible realm. An association among forms or a dissociation, is expressible in thoughts and statements, the ontological foundations for which are difficult to see.
But since the eternal is ontologically prior to the temporal, the association of individual forms cannot be reduced to their expression. Motion and being must be eternally associated. It is at least possible that the introduction of thinking into the really real is intended to provide the solution to this problem. Here is a way of considering this solution. Suppose an array of forms that provides the ontological foundation for 1. Every necessary truth simpliciter, and 2. Every contingent truth that depends on a necessary truth. Examples of 1 are naturally found within mathematics, though there is, in principle, no limitation on what the necessary truths are truths about. For example, moral properties. Examples of two, at the most simple, are predicative judgments of the sort S is F, where F stands for a property instantiating a form. So, S could not be F unless the form of F exists, or unless F exists is a necessary truth. What is still wanting is an explanation of how the postulated array of forms is an association. That is, the association must somehow represent a unity, so we can say that what one form is, is to be relatively identical with another form, such that there is a necessary truth that, for example, motion exists. Relative identity ensures that participation in one form entails participation in another. The problem with this, as it stands, is that relative identity seems to be a reciprocal relation. But although it may be the case that motion exists, it is not the case that being is in motion, or, less contentiously, that oddness is three. What is needed is a generic form that unites all the forms in their articulated differentiations. This seems to be the form of being itself. But this virtual identity is not sufficient, since the necessary truths in one and two above depend on the non-identity of the forms that are associated. This is why an intellect eternally thinking all these necessary truths in their relative identities and differences is required. The ontological foundation for the necessary truth three is odd is in eternal thinking. The relevant intellect is eternally cognitively identical with what it is thinking, which is, generically, being itself. The array of forms is one because the thinker is one, and the thinker is cognitively identical with the forms. The forms appear as an articulated many to anyone expressing uh, in a logos, or in a thought, a necessary truth. In the sophist passage in which the properties of the greatest kinds, ta magista gene, are deduced, there is additional information relevant to the above interpretation. The five greatest kinds are motion, kinesis, stability, stasis, identity, tauton, difference, heteron, and being, 
to'on. We have already seen that motion exists because it partakes of being, which must be distinct from it. But being is different from identity. It is also different from difference. Being is different from difference and different from identity, not owing to its own nature, but owing to its partaking of difference. The designation of being as a kind, even one of the greatest kinds, is, to say the least, odd. The apparent oddness should be mitigated by the fact that this kind is not equivalent to the subject of first philosophy for Aristotle, namely being qua being. The equivalent functional role of being qua being for Plato is that of the idea of the good, which is beyond being. More important for present purposes is that being is both in itself, kathauto, and in relation to something else, pros alo, meaning that within being there is a real distinction between what being is in itself and the difference it has in relation to the other kinds, and the other kinds in relation to it. We have already been prepared for this startling conclusion by Plato's previous rejection in the dialogue of Parmenides's claim that being is one. But now we have a better sense of why this is so. The in itself refers to each essence and altogether. The in relation to something else indicates their internal relatedness. Being must be complex, or a one-many, if there is to be an intelligible world. This complexity requires that the first principle of all be, uh, be beyond being in the sense of being other than that which exists by having a finite nature, or usia. The idea of the good, or the one, or, if one insists, the nameless first principle of all, is a postulate inseparable from the a postulate of an eternal intelligible world. And as we have seen, an eternal intellect, eternally cognitively identical with the array of intelligibles, is an additional postulate without which the first two would be insufficient. Neither the good, nor the forms alone, nor the good and the forms together achieve explanatory adequacy. The Tihikanon of Phaedo the kind being seems most perspicuously represented as a summum genus of all intelligibles, analogous to the form of the good, not the idea of the good, the genus of perfection, according to the interpretation of Proclus. Both are distinct from, from and subordinate to the idea of the good, or the one. In addition to containing all the forms, being is essentially connected to an eternal intellect. Being, though one, is intrinsically complex, or many, as it comprises all intelligible reality. If an eternal intellect is cognitively identical with being, we can speak both of the intellectual side of the intelligible world and of the intelligible side, recognizing that these are ontologically inseparable. The inseparability of intellectuality and intelligibility 
and the consequent fact that whatever partakes of the one partakes of the other, apparently yields a surprising result congenial to the panpsychist naturalist. If an electron partakes of the form of electron, it thereby partakes of the intellect that is cognitively identical with all intelligible reality. But apart from the fact that embracing this conclusion means detaching panpsychism from naturalism, there is a further consideration. There are necessary conditions for an electron's participating in the form, just as there are necessary conditions for something having a life, that is, a particular kind of life. In addition, Platonists insist that there are necessary conditions for the presence of an immaterial intellect in human beings. The necessary conditions for being an electron are, so far as we can tell, other than and probably incompatible with the necessary conditions either for life or for intellect. If this is so, then electrons could not partake of life or intellect after all. They are limited in this way by having only the necessary conditions for partaking of the form of electron. As Platonists will later express the point, things partake in as much of being as they are able to, according to the essence of each. It is not the case that being is itself variously dispersed. It is altogether one and entirely present wherever it is present. But the necessary conditions for participating in being are variously dispersed, such that, for example, when the necessary conditions for being a worm are present, the necessary conditions for being a flea are not, and the worm is thereby deprived of what is completely available to it in principle. Our embodied intellects represent being in logoi and in thought. Presumably, what allows us or compels us to represent being in all its variegations is our experience in the sensible world of the instances of forms, the products of the creative activity of the demiurge. The ability that rational animals have to engage in such representations and to express, affirm, and deny them is owing to the knowledge that we have had prior to incarnation. On the hypothesis that being and intellection are two sides of the same coin, our immortal souls or intellects are, too, identical with being. According to the story of the soul's creation in Timaeus, however, our souls are made of a mixture of the type of usia that is found in the intelligible world and the type of usia that is found in the sensible world. On the basis of this mixture, it is not clear whether the soul, when separated from the body, sheds the sensible type of usia, or whether it retains this, making its reconnection with the intelligible world more problematic. Speaking for the first alternative is that the composition of the human soul precedes its seeding among stars prior to the incarnation of individuals. In the pre-incarnate state, the, laws, uh, the Demiurge addresses human souls regarding the nature of the cosmos and the laws of destiny. Therefore, we may infer that the post-incarnate soul, or its immortal part, is capable of reconnecting with the knowledge it was given prior to incarnation. 
It is, therefore, owing to being a soul in a body that we are unable to cognize forms directly without representation. Prima facie, it is a major concession to naturalism to admit that incarnated souls, human beings, have access to the intelligible world only via representations. For, as Rorty insisted, representation is not mirroring. Caught within the web of conceptual thinking and language, we do not seem to have direct access to an intelligible world as Plato conceived of it, since we do not even have direct access to the sensible, to the sensible world. The relation between being and cognitional representations remains a crucial stress point in the debate between Platonism and naturalism. It must be added, however, that the fact that there is no access to intelligibles without representation certainly does not entail that thinking is just representation. The internal complexity of the kind being is, I claim, strong evidence in support of the role of the good, or one, in the Platonic system. If there is a first principle of all, it must be beyond being, because a first principle of all must be absolutely simple, whereas being is intrinsically complex. Stated otherwise, since the first principle of all must be absolutely simple, it must be beyond being, since the being of anything is intrinsically complex. That is, minimally, its being is comprised of existence and essence. In the Sophist, Plato explicitly limits his discussion of being and not being, or difference, only to that which is necessary for identifying the Sophist. For this reason, we do not get a full-scale discussion of this complex topic. It is clear, however, that the complexity of being does not just allow for the possibility of an absolutely simple first principle of all. It demands such a principle. 5.4 First Principles in Philebus Philebus is a dialogue in search of the human good, that is, the best sort of life for a human being. The central problem for the dialogue is the relative weight that should be given to intellect, nous, and pleasure, hedone, in that life. In search of the correct answer, general ontological principles are adduced in a number of passages. The central principle is that of nous, quote, should we say, Protarchus, that everything, I mean, that which is called the universe, is governed by irrationality and by chance, or, on the contrary, as those who have gone before us have said, that it is governed by some wonderful organizing intellect and wisdom, end quote. The introduction of nous as a supreme organizing principle immediately complicates the picture. For even though in Republic the idea of the good is said to be the happiest of that which is, a claim that is hardly perspicuous. There is no indication that the good is intellect. Indeed, the good would seem to be beyond intellect, insofar as it is beyond usia. How, then, are the two supposed to be related? The role of the intellect itself is not entirely clear. 
for it is implicitly introduced with a tetrad of principles underlying the composition of everything in the universe. Quote, Let us divide into two, or rather three if you don't mind, all the things said now to be in the universe. We said, if you recall, that God has shown us that among things there is the unlimited, and there is the limit. Let us posit these two forms, with the third being the mixture of the two. Look for the cause of the mixture in these two with each other, and add it to the other three as a fourth. End quote. The cause of the mixture is nous, which operates by imposing a limit on an unlimited principle in order to produce the mixture. The specific mixture in the good life that the dialogue is meant to ascertain is that of intellect and pleasure, a kind of unlimitedness admitting of more and less indefinitely. Even if there can be some doubt as to the status of the unlimited as a principle, there can be no doubt that intellect and limitedness have a fundamental role that transcends the sensible world. This is evident in the identification of nous as a divine nature only two pages later. We do not have, though, any clear evidence as to how these principles relate to the idea of the good. On the other hand, the primary aim of this dialogue is to discover the human good. Socrates lays down three criteria for this good, that it be perfect, teleon, sufficient, hikanon, and that it be the object of choice. The human good will be found in a characteristically human life, but this good can only be one finite expression of the idea of the good. If, after all, it is true that we all desire the good for ourselves, this is only obtainable by a choice of a specific good, or set of goods, perfecting human activities and desires. The human good will be so because it is a specific instance of the good itself. Something possesses the predicate good because it participates in the good, which, judging from Republic, is the superordinate idea. In the concluding passage of Philebus we read, quote, So, if we are not able to capture the good in one idea, let us get at it with three, with beauty and commensurability and truth, and say that we would be most correct to treat these as, in a way, one, and responsible for what is in the mixture of the elements of the good life, and that it is owing to this, that is, the three taken as one, being, um, being good, that it becomes so." End quote. Note that the first sentence does not deny the existence of the idea of the good, only that we cannot capture it in one idea, something that would follow immediately from the idea being beyond usia. The three available ways of capture are via beauty, commensurability, and truth. We have already seen above, section 5.1, number 6, that the idea of the good provides truth to forms. And truth, that is, ontological truth, is transparency or availability to an intellect. As for commensurability, we learned earlier in the dialogue that it is a proportion of or ratio of measures, which themselves are combinations of limit, 
and unlimited elements. That is, commensurability results when various limits are applied to various unlimited bases and then combined according to an appropriate or ideal proportion. As for beauty, we have also seen above, section 5.1, number 16, that the idea of the good is more beautiful than knowledge and truth. Thus, even if the idea of the good is not directly in view in Philebus, the attentive reader can hardly avoid the conclusion that this dialogue enriches our understanding of the first principle of all. If commensurability, truth, and beauty are in a way one, and they are various expressions or aspects of the good, which is itself beyond usia, it seems to follow that the idea of the good is itself, in a way, a principle of unity or oneness, in the sense of incompositeness. It should also be noted that the three aspects are referred to in the singular, tuto, when the cause of goodness in a mixture is cited. That is, commensurability, beauty, and truth are ultimately unified in some way. Admittedly, the connection between the idea of the good and unity or oneness is, on the basis of this passage alone, tenuous. Given this passage, though, it is difficult to see why Aristotle's testimony, which explicitly identifies the good with the one, should be discounted. As Platonists understood it, the one and the indefinite dyad are the principle of limitedness and unlimitedness in all composites, which is to say, everything other than the one itself. The one is itself not the limit in each thing, nor is the indefinite dyad the unlimited. Limit and unlimitedness are manifestations of these principles. As the above passage makes clear, the unity that something has is the result of the imposition of limit on unlimitedness, and it is this unity that defines the goodness of the thing, that unity and goodness being indexed to the kind of thing it is. This is integrative unity, which implies that the one, being incomposite, is not that, but rather its principle. The assimilation of the idea of the good to the one is, accordingly, the metaphysical foundation for Plato's anti-relativism. The puzzle about how the good provides truth to the forms is solved by looking at the good from the aspect of integrative unity. Ontological truth is a relative property of intelligibles, the property of being transparent to an intellect. This means seeing the unity of the parts of an intelligible complex or whole. For example, seeing a pattern in an array of numbers, or seeing the unified functionality across the organs among biological homologues, or seeing a unifying cause behind various medical symptoms, or, to take an unquestionably platonic example, seeing that physical and, phys and psychical beauty are really one thing. In all these cases, the good provides truth to the intelligibles manifested in these examples because the good is the one. Owing to the uniqueness of the good or one, 
all unity other than its own is complex. The unity, as opposed to the disarray of the complex, is integrative unity, and without it there would be no intelligibility. That is, to be able to understand anything at all, it is necessary to see the unity of its parts, where unity is indexed to kinds or essences, and parts can be either static or dynamic or both. The unified paradigms are, as instruments of the good or the one, relative principles of unity, and hence of intelligibility. Returning to nous as the cause of any good mixture, this seems to be the demiurge. Because the demiurge is good-like, he manifests proportion, beauty, and truth, and this is what he communicates to the cosmos. What he produces for each natural kind is an integrative unity. Deviations from this unity, for whatever reason, can be judged over against the form he instantiates in each case. Hence, for human beings, our ideal achievement is determined by our endowment, and this is expressible in terms of an integrative unity of the parts of the soul and of the soul-body complex. The best life for a soul-body complex is a particular sort of integrative unity. But the uh, this is not the best life for a soul capable of living separate from a body. The ideal integrative unity of the soul consists in cognitive identity with all that is intelligible. Beauty, commensurability, and truth are ways of attaining the good. The combination of the three criteria forms an integrative unity, that is, the unity of a complex. One of the things it means to say that the good is the one is that the good is achievable only via an integrative unity of the criteria, the sort of unity appropriate for a human being. Any such unity obviously approaches the good or one itself asymptotically, as it were. There is no integration into or with the absolutely first, uh, simple first principle of all. 5.5. First Principles in Timaeus The principal texts in the dialogues in which Plato indicates the mathematical tendency of his thought are in Timaeus. The Demiurge, says Timaeus, quote, wanted to make the cosmos as near as possible to being like himself, end quote. Just one page later, he says that the Demiurge wanted to assimilate homoiosai, the cosmos, to the most beautiful of intelligibles, that is, to the living animal that contains all intelligible living kinds within it. It is possible, of course, to take these wishes on the part of the Demiurge as two and not one. If this is true, then being like the Demiurge is not identical to being like the living animal. One desideratum could possibly be achieved without the other, but on that interpretation, it's a mystery how both desiderata are to be independently achieved. For when the demiurge acts, he does one thing and one thing only, namely imposes mathematical order on the precosmic soup using shapes and numbers, idesi te kai arithmois, 
This presumably achieves both desiderata. The shaped and numbered elements are themselves composed into living beings here below, according to the mathematical formulae that guarantee assimilation to the living animal. Both desiderata are simultaneously achieved if the eternal intellection of the demiurge is cognitive identification with all that is intelligible. There are, within the entire Platonic tradition, three ways to understand such intellection. According to the first way, what the demiurge has in his intellect are concepts, noemata, or thoughts of intelligibles, which are separate from these concepts. According to the second, intelligibles just are such concepts. According to the third, the demiurge is cognitively identical with the intelligibles themselves. On the first view, it is difficult to see how a concept of an intelligible, not derived from sense perception, differs from the intelligible itself. More important, this view requires the separation of the desiderata, in which case it is not clear how the cosmos is made to be like the demiurge, in addition to being made to be like the living animal. That is, how is the element of fire made to be like the demiurge, where this likeness is other than its likeness to fire in the living animal? On the second view, Plato would be held to be contradicting his claim in Parmenides that forms are not concepts, noemata, but rather that which concepts are of. This leaves the third view, according to which the demiurge is eternally cognitively identical with all that is intelligible. Thus, real or true being and paradigmatic intellection are extensionally equivalent. Therefore, we can say that the association of forms is the thinking by the demiurge of all necessary truths, including those that make contingent truths intelligible. The unity of being is the unity that intellect has by being cognitively identical with being. This is an integrative unity that is of an irreducible many. If the demiurge is an intellect cognitively identical with being, but distinct from it, the unity that intellect has with being is extrinsic to intellect and extrinsic to being, since being is an array of intelligibles. The unity is evidently supposed to be provided by the good, which provides both existence and essence to intellect intelligibles. Presumably owing to the fact that the good is the source of this unity, its alternative name is, not inappropriately, the one, just as Aristotle tells us. In Timaeus, the principle that is nous is identified as the cause of the transformation of the pre-cosmic chaos into the orderly universe we presently inhabit. The demiurge is not explicitly said to be nous, but the imposition by the demiurge of shapes and numbers on the receptacle are said to be, quote, the things crafted owing to intellect, ta dia nu de demiurgamena, 
end quote. The Demiurge does, the, does this by using as his paradigm the living animal, Hosdoon, which somehow contains within it all the intelligible living animals as parts. He looked, Ebleben, to the eternal, to Aelion, in order to have the paradigms for use. The looking is presumably an intellectual awareness, which, since it occurs before the generation of time, is an eternal intellectual relation between nous and intelligibles, or tanoita. Given this, we can hardly suppose that the demiurge is identical with the good which is beyond usia. For first, the demiurge has an usia because it has a distinct activity, that of thinking. We may add in this regard that the Demiurge is also himself good, a property he has, presumably, by participating in the idea of the good. Second, if the Demiurge is eternally in cognitive relation to forms, these forms, or if one insists, their simulacra, must inform his usia. Finally, there are two passages later in the dialogue in which Timaeus states that this dialogue will not consider, quote, the principle or principles of all things, end quote. This alone should be taken as conclusive proof that the demiurge, or the demiurge and forms, is not those principles. The function of the demiurge serves to reply to the criticism that forms are metaphysically idle. As we have already seen, forms taken alone, separate from intellect, the good, and from each other, could justifiably be said to be metaphysically idle. That is, they are not able to account for their instantiation. But this is not Plato's position. Nor is his position that an eternal intellect, eternally contemplating itself, including all that is intelligible, supplies the remedy to idleness. Rather, the demiurge, cognitively identical with forms, is an instrument of the inexhaustible power, uh, causal power of the good. Forms are not metaphysically idle because forms were never intended by Plato to be independently causally efficacious. The introduction of the Demiurge seems prepared for by the passage in Sophist above, which insists on the inclusion of life, intellect, and so on in the intelligible world, and in Philevis, in which a divine intellect governs the cosmos. The nonsensible world, then, the subject matter of philosophy, includes the good or one, forms, the demiurge, or divine intellect, and souls, insofar as they are composed of eternal, nonsensible essence. The integration of these elements of intelligible reality, uh, in a systematic manner, was the central task of Platonism. There are here so many moving parts, literally, one is inclined to say, that it is not surprising that disagreement was endemic. On one side, the systematic construction proceeded apace within the framework provided by the canonical texts. On the other, 
Engagements with naturalists required appeal to whatever happened at the time to be the favored version of a systematic construct. It is probably the case that no Platonists of antiquity considered the possibility that there was, in fact, no coherent account of the first principles to be had from Plato. This is particularly so in light of the fact that Aristotle seems to assume that there is a genuine account of this sort, even though it does not ultimately stand up to criticism. In the second part of this book, I shall turn to some of the outstanding figures in the Platonic tradition with an eye to their unique contributions to the system exposed in the first part. These contributions include both exegesis and the replies to arguments arising from anti-Platonists or naturalists. Occasionally, we will see that uh, we will see the system applied to the solution of hitherto unremarked philosophical problems. Amid the manifest disagreements among Platonists regarding how to understand what Plato says and what is implied by the truth of what he says, there is, with some notable exceptions, an impressive agreement about principles and what the denial of these principles amounts to. 5.6 Aristotle's account of first principles in Plato. I have left to the end of this chapter Aristotle's testimony regarding the good and the one. I do this because I have tried to show that from the dialogues alone we can derive considerable information on two central points. One, Plato posits an unhypothetical explanatory first principle of all that is absolutely simple or incomposite. It does not even have the minimal compositeness required for an entity to be something or other, that is, to have any true predicative judgments made of it. 2. One suitable name for this principle is the idea of the good. It is so called because entities, including the Demiurge, are good owing to their participation in it. But the explanatory role of this principle remains mostly obscure if we insist that it is only a principle of goodness. Much of what the first principle of all is said to do is owing to its being a principle of unity or oneness, though we need to keep constantly in mind that the first principle is neither good nor one predicatively. With these points in view, Aristotle's testimony to the effect that Plato identified the good with the one is more confirmatory than a bolt from the blue. It is certainly not the outrageous misinterpretation that many make it out to be. In chapter 6 of Book Alpha of Metaphysics, Aristotle moves from a survey of pre-Socratic philosophers to Plato, whose treatment, pragmateia, of ultimate causes is a centerpiece of Aristotle's dialectical history. Aristotle begins by distinguishing the ethical philosophy of the historical Socrates from the metaphysics of Plato, which begins with the positing of separate forms as the objects of knowledge. He adds that, in addition to forms and sensibles, Plato posited mathematical objects which are intermediary between the two. He then reports, quote, Since the forms are the causes of all other things, he thought that the elements of forms are the elements of all things. 
As matter, the great and the small are the principles. As essence, it is the one. For from the great and the small, and by participation in the one, come the forms, and these are numbers. In saying that the one is essence, and not another thing that is said to be one, he spoke like the Pythagoreans, and also like them in saying that numbers are causes of the essence of other things. End quote. The evidence that Plato did indeed identify forms with numbers, in some sense, is extensive. Aristotle does not introduce this identification as a late development in Plato's thinking. Indeed, Aristotle, throughout the copious and the scores of references to Plato's philosophy, never even suggests that the philosophy is not a unified system. The reduction of forms to numbers is not presented as a development, but rather as an integral part of Plato's causal analysis. The testimony continues, quote, It is evident from what has been said that Plato uses only two causes, the cause of the whatness and the cause according to matter, for the forms are the cause of the whatness of the other things, and the cause of the whatness of the forms is the one. It is also evident what the underlying matter is, in virtue of which the forms are predicated of the sensible things, and the one is predicated of the forms. This is the dyad, or the great and the small. End quote. Aristotle's testimony is that the ultimate principles of Plato's philosophy are the one and the indefinite dyad. It is not unreasonable to infer from this that this one must be another name for the first principle of all, the idea of the good. This inference is supported by the following passage, quote, Among those who posit immovable substances, some say that the one itself is the good itself. At least they thought the essence of the good to be, most of all, the one, end quote. A number of features in the above report deserve attention. The first is the claim that Plato viewed forms as having elements. The second is that these elements are the one and the great and the small, also called the indefinite dyad, eoristos duas. As the, as the next passage indicates, the third feature of the above account is Aristotle's expression of the two principles as matter and essence, or form. We must assume that Aristotle knew that the idea of the good is specifically said by Plato to be beyond essence. If the good is the one, in what sense is it the essence in relation to matter? We may recall that the one being of hypothesis two of Parmenides partakes of essence. We are left with no indication by Plato of how one being can partake of essence, if that in which it partakes has no essence. Alternatively, if it does not partake of the essence of the one, then in what sense is the one, or good, the first principle of all? And again, if one being does partake of the one, and thereby shows that it has an essence, how can the one be absolutely simple? In addition, 
Note Aristotle's careful distinction between outright identification of good and one, and a more nuanced possibility, that though the two may be identical in reality, they may yet be somehow distinct in logos. One suggestion that I shall explore in the next chapter is that the first principle of all is the good in so far as it is the end or goal, and the one in so far as it is the metaphysical cause of all things. The idea is that in reality the first principle of all must be identical with the goal of all things. As we shall see, this is the axiom which leads Platonism to claim that ethics is inseparable from metaphysics. The axiom is open to the obvious challenge that there is simply no one good that all things seek, but rather that good is equivocal. This is Aristotle's objection to a coordinate form of the good, a genus of all types of goods. But the idea of the good cannot be a summum genus, since it is above essence. Still, radical equivocity in the meaning of good is a bedrock of any type of naturalism. With the rejection of metaphysics, it goes without saying that a naturalist account of ethics cannot appeal to any metaphysical foundation. The identification of the good with the one is also supported by a fragment from a student of Aristotle, Aristoxenus, in his Elementia Harmonica, in which he reports that Aristotle said that in a public lecture on the good, Plato, uh, Plato defied the expectations of his audience, instead, and instead of talking about the traditional human goods, such as wealth, health, and strength, he discoursed on mathematics culminating in the claim that the good is one. The glaring problem in understanding this testimony is not the identification of the good with the one, but with the postulation of the indefinite dyad as a supposedly coordinate principle. If the good-slash-one and the indefinite dyad are distinct principles on the identical ontological level, then each must possess sufficient complexity in order to be distinct from one another. But then, the absolute simplicity of the first principle of all is destroyed, along with the rationale for positing such a principle in the first place. The interpretive and philosophical choices seem to be either to somehow subordinate the indefinite dyad to the good-slash-one, or else to subordinate both the indefinite dyad and the good-slash-one as coordinate principles of the form numbers to another superordinate good-slash-one. In the latter case, we can maintain the interpretation of the first hypothesis of the second part of the Parmenides as referring to a remote, uncognizable first principle, and the second hypothesis as referring to the one and its coordinate indefinite dyad. The path to a solution to this problem should begin by recognizing that the indefinite dyad has its own sort of unity. It has a unity which nevertheless entails complexity, since the one is uniquely simple. And it is the one's simplicity that entails its absolute priority. Accordingly, the indefinite dyad cannot be really coordinate with the primary one. 
The indefinite dyad is a coordinate principle of being, but the first principle of all is beyond being. Undoubtedly, this alternative involves its own severe problems. Why, though, is the indefinite dyad a principle at all? The simple answer is that the indefinite dyad is the principle of plethos, or magnitude or size, which includes both continuous and discrete quantities. With the principle of number alone, there could be no lines or planes or solid figures. The apparent paradox facing Plato is this. If everything is generated from the one, then so is the indefinite dyad. But magnitude cannot be generated from the one. For example, a line is not generated from a point or an aggregation of points. The paradox is mitigated to a certain extent by the fact that one being is not number, but the principle of number in which case number is generated from one being as much as is magnitude. This is why number and magnitude are both generated in the second hypothesis of Parmenides. They are coordinate principles of one being. It is simply not the case that the indefinite dyad is coordinate with the one, the first principle of all. The general idea, I think, is that generation of numbers up to the generation of three-dimensional volumes may be conceived of as a geometrical construction eternally carried out and eternally completed by a divine intellect, that is, the demiurge. Plato does not have to worry about how lines are composed out of points. Rather, lines are constructed from a starting point in thought and planes from a given line, and so forth. The ontological hierarchy is manifested by constructive mathematical analysis. The generation of bodies in time is that of an image of this mathematical order. Without the indefinite dyad, not only could bodies not exist, but even their paradigmatic geometrical volumes could not exist. Neither could the mathematical objects. In fact, Without the indefinite dyad, there could not even exist that which is minimally complex, that in which existence and essence are distinct. But complexity is, apparently, maximally instantiated. In that case, the one from the first hypothesis, and one being from the second hypothesis, which comprises the indefinite dyad and the array of essences and with which an eternal intellect is cognitively identical, must exist. Aristotle's ten, uh, testimony regarding the reduction of forms to the principles of the one and the indefinite dyad is, along with the texts in Republic, on the good as unhypothetical first principle of all, the most important piece of evidence for the claim that Plato's philosophy is systematic. This evidence also informs us that the system is a derivation system hierarchical in, in terms of logical or substantial proximity to the first principle. Simply stated, the greater unity there is, the closer something is to the first principle. And the identification of good and one means that unity is also an index of goodness, or at least of proximity to the achievement of goodness. I am happy to allow that, absent this evidence, 
there is little reason to insist that Plato is a systematic philosopher. Nevertheless, I see no reason whatsoever for rejecting the evidence, either of Republic itself and elsewhere, or that of Aristotle's testimony, or that of the indirect tradition, much of which certainly does not rest upon Aristotle's testimony, but on that of other academics. For the sake of historical accuracy, it is essential that the engagement of Platonism with naturalism follow upon a systematic exposition of the former. Indeed, many of the forms of naturalism in antiquity, most notably Stoicism, were systematic as well. The fundamental grounds of their opposition will be most perspicuously available to us if we see the engagement at a systematic level. But apart from the history, any philosophical illumination resulting from the consideration of the opposition of Platonism to naturalism needs the derivation system as the grounds for its anti-nominalism, anti-materialism, anti-mechanism, anti-relativism, and anti-skepticism.